We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 today. Gospel of Luke chapter 3. And we're starting in verse 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iurea, I lost my glasses this morning, and Tractanus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? He answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him in and I said, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, almighty God, once again, we humble ourselves before your presence and, and seek your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, uh, give us insight and understanding. I pray that we would comprehend the truths being spoken here today. And that not only would we understand it, but that we would apply it and be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Holy Spirit, have your way with us today. Move among us. Shake our hearts up. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would not be comfortable here today, but be uncomfortable, that we would be moved to repentance, as even John the Baptist preached, and that, Lord, we would realize this is not to please man, but to please you. Pray that our ways would be pleasing in your sight. And that we would not be comfortable when they're not pleasing in your sight. God, have grace on us. And I pray that you would uh, convict us, exhort us, encourage us, and strengthen us. I pray, O oh Lord, that your my, my mind would also, O oh Lord, be anointed by your spirit. And that my lips may speak forth your truth with power, conviction, and unction. In Christ's name, amen. I have often wondered what it would have been like to have lived in ancient Israel during the time when a prophet of God came on the scene. Imagine having been alive when Elijah was prophesying, when he was going about and, and preaching and confronting Ahab and Jezebel, when he, when he confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Imagine having been in the audience, or, or imagine having seen Jeremiah thunder against King Zedekiah and and prophesying that Babylon would indeed sack Jerusalem, and, and hearing the voices of these man, men as they said, Thus saith the Lord. You see, the Old Testament prophet was sent by God. They were spokesmen for God, and they were anointed by the Holy Spirit with a unique calling, and they were given utterance to speak with authority from God himself. Now, not everybody who said, thus saith the Lord, was from the Lord. And Israel was given ways to discern whether a prophet was sent from God or not. There is one prophet, though, who is the greatest of the Old Testament, and that prophet would have been John the Baptist. 
He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was spoken of by Malachi, the last of the prophets that recorded in the Old Testament. And under the Old Covenant age, he would be the fulfillment of Elijah to come, who would turn the hearts of God's people back to him. This was the revelation given to his father, Zechariah the priest, um, as we learned about his birth narrative previously in the Gospel of Luke. And so as we get to the context of John the Baptist, one wonders what it would have been like to hear him preach. Well, I could tell you this, John the Baptist was not the most appealing preacher. He was a very rough man. The Gospel of Matthew and Mark tells us, uh, along with Luke, that he lived in the wilderness and he wore camel hair and a leather belt and he ate locusts and honey. He was what we would consider a wilderness man. He was a rough man. He was someone who was not educated or refined in the ways of scholarly Israel. He was someone who, was, uh, who grew most of his adult life, as we'll see in a moment, uh, probably with the Essene community. Now, there's some scholarship uh, wonders if he uh, broke off from his family and broke off from uh, the community where he grew up to um, join the Essenes. Who were the Essenes? The Essenes were a monastic group um, that, that during the first century essentially uh, were disgusted with the way things were going. Uh, they lived in the wilderness. They kind of broke free from all of modern conveniences and lived in a communal setting. Now, it, it would be kind of like people who just kind of get, in our own day and age, they, they form communes in the Midwest and they, they kind of live together. They don't have uh, uh, any uh, radio or TV or automobiles and just kind of live off the land. This was the Essene community. Um, and they wanted to devote themselves to peace and godliness and purity. Uh, they saw Jerusalem and they saw the religious establishment there is utterly corrupt and they just wanted to live a, a life for God. It was a, it was a monastic movement, more or less. And given the fact that John is said to be come from the wilderness, specifically the wilderness near the Jordan, this would have been where the Essene community developed, particularly where the Dead Sea is, which is why and we have a lot to be thankful for the Essene community, because they preserved a lot of scripture and what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are used... Um, um, mostly to, to formulate the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Not the New Testament, I'm sorry, but the Old Testament, rather. Many of the Old Testament texts were preserved um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we have a lot of those fragments today that help us to understand proper biblical interpretation. And so John the Baptist um, what lived in obscurity for a number of years. He, we know just about what happened when he was born. Um, the Bible says he grew up and, and, and then he dwelt in the wilderness for some time in obscurity. And now his public ministry would begin. And as the prophet Isaiah foresaw him, he is a voice crying in the wilderness. He is a voice crying in the wilderness. And so today we are introduced to John the Baptist. And we are going to examine uh, a few aspects of who the man is and what his mission is. The first thing we want to understand is who he is as a man in the context he's living in. And it's an important phrase here that Luke uses to describe the beginning of John's ministry. He says, the word of God came to John, verse 2. The word of God came to John. Now, this is an important formula. It's used often in the Old Testament um, to speak of the beginning of one's prophetic call. And, and in the beginning of a prophetic call, the word of God came to Isaiah, the word of God came to Jeremiah, and in the same way, the word of God came. So there was a, a beginning of his public ministry where he broke off from the Essenes, as assumed, and began to preach. He began to preach a message of repentance and of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But what is the historical context? Remember, Luke is a historian, so history matters. The details matter. Luke wants to put him in a specific time and place. And he tells us a lot about uh, the historical context of John's public ministry. Number one, he tells us that Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of Rome at the time, and he was in the 15th year of his reign. 
Now, being that Augustus, who was the um, emperor when John and Jesus were born, had died in August AD 14, this would have been the 15th year, would have brought us to about AD 28, AD 29, more or less. We're not going to get too much into the depths of it, but Tiberius was uh, the next emperor in line after Augustus, and he was the emperor of Rome. We also are told that Pilate is the governor of Judea. Now, Pilate would be in power um, until A.D. 36. His reign began in A.D. 26, and his name is very familiar to us because uh, he would have an encounter with Christ uh, when he was sent by the Jews to be crucified. It was Pilate who would order him executed. And so he would become governor at A.D. 26, and Pilate was not a friend to the Jews. He hated the Jews. He hated the fact that he was placed there in Jerusalem. He was placed there as a form of punishment. And um, his previous governor, and, and by the way, the word governor, although it's used here, the actual title in Latin would have been prefect. And so he was a prefect sent from Rome who replaced, um, who replaced Archelaus, who had failed um, to lead that area, it was, it was in disarray. And when Pilate came in, the way he brought order to the region of Judea was through, um, through very strong leadership, uh, brutality, and authoritarian rule. And so we know that uh, Luke will tell us later about Pilate spring, minkling the blood of some of the Jews with the Gentiles. Um, he was a cruel leader, cruel leader. And then Herod the Tetrarch, uh, also known as Herod Antipas, he is the, the puppet ruler of most of the region where Christ's public ministry would develop. Now Herod the Great had died in 4 BC and he had built the temple in Jerusalem and, and Herod the Great um, was, was the king who established his reign there as a puppet ruler from Rome and when he died he divided his kingdom into three parts and that was divided amongst his three sons. And we see here that Herod Antipas is one. And then, of course, Philip. And Luke refers to Licinius. And then finally, last but not least, is the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Um, now, this is interesting that both of them are mentioned at the same time because there can only be one high priest at a time. However, um, we know that Annas... Was, was deposed by Rome in A.D. 15. He was deposed due to his non-compliance and difficulty with the Roman Empire. And his nephew Caiaphas was installed as high priest instead. And he will rule till A.D. 36. Now Caiaphas and Annas are seen as a unit throughout the Gospels. And that is because although Caiaphas is the official high priest, everybody in Jerusalem knows that Annas is the boss. He holds considerable influence, and even though he was, he was deposed by Rome, they saw him as the true high priest, and so they worked together. As we read these names, it reads like a rogues gallery of all of Christ's enemies, and they are. It's, these are all the villains of the Gospel of Luke. Pilate, Herod, um, um, Caiaphas, Annas, uh, the emperor not so much, he's sort of in the background, but all of these names indicate to us that these are the rulers of this world. These are the people in power and in control of the government, of the religious establishment, of the empire. And all of them are godless. All of them are power hungry. All of them are ruthless. All of them are cruel. All of them are sinners. And they will do whatever they need to do to stay in power. But I want you to see that it's within the backdrop of that. It's in the backdrop of, of darkness. It's in the backdrop of, of wickedness and cruel leadership and oppression that we're introduced to John as the word of God came. The word of God comes sometimes at the most darkest times and the darkest hours of history. In ancient Israel, the word of God would often come when things seemed like there was no hope the light of God's word would burst through. When it seemed God had forgotten Israel, he would raise up Moses and said, I've heard their cries, I've seen their pain, and I've listened to their prayers. And he sent them Moses. The word of God came to them. It was in the darkness of the Middle Ages 
when it seemed all hope was lost, when the church was completely corrupted, apostate, that the word of God came to men like Martin Luther and there was a revival and a recapturing. And I want to argue to you that in the same way, in the same place here today, as dark as things may seem, as much as it, it seems like the leadership and the politics and the government of the world, it just seems like chaotic and dark around us. It's in the darkest of times where we ought to pray and seek that the word of God may come once again and bring revival. And that's really what John the Baptist is, isn't he? He's a revival preacher. He's preaching revival. He's preaching reform. And it comes through repentance. But he's no ordinary prophet and he's not a reformer. He is the forerunner of Messiah. John had a specific call to his ministry. He, the word of God came for him for a specific purpose, and that is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, just a little background to understand what the forerunner or what a forerunner is, is in ancient times, when an emperor or king would come to visit a town or to visit a city, you didn't just show up and one day and catch everybody by surprise. Uh, this is a big deal if the emperor came to town. Not too long ago, in San Francisco, the president of China visited. If you recall, um, the whole city of San Francisco went all out to deck the streets, to decorate with uh, Chinese flags. Uh, the, the, it was like a, a royal welcome to the president of China who was coming to visit San Francisco. And, and whether that's right or wrong is something for you guys to debate, but it's a very, I use it as an example to illustrate that in the same way the ancient world, the forerunner, was usually a royal official who was sent as a herald to, to go and advance uh, before the emperor or king. And he'd go to town and say, listen, guys, we got to get ready. We got to prepare this place, and this place has to look good. We better be on our best behavior. We need to roll out the red carpet because the king is coming. And that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent by God to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. He was sent by God to prepare people, to prepare Israel, to prepare the Jewish people for the coming of their Messiah. Jesus Christ had not been introduced yet on the public scene, but he is about to be, and he would be introduced by John. And so John had one of the most privileged prophetic ministries. All the prophets in the Old Testament pointed to Christ from far away. John had the unique privilege to say, and I introduce to you the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a privilege. The word of God came to him. And it's important to understand and see what Isaiah says of this. Luke uh, brings us back to the Old Testament. He brings us back to another prophecy, and that's the prophecy of Isaiah. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. Now, I want to look at the original passage. So let's go in our Bibles to Isaiah 40. There's some, some variations based on the fact that it was coming from the Septuagint. And, but I want you to see precisely where the prophecy is coming from here that Luke refers to. And I'm going to read it in its fuller context. If you recall, when we looked at our Christmas sermon, it was... Christ was referred to as the consolation of Israel. Rather, when we talked about Annas, um, um, no, Anna and um, Simeon, as they foresaw and looked for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here we go, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the precise text that Luke is referring to in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3. And it tells us exactly, you see the fulfillment of this in John the Baptist. He is that voice crying in the wilderness. 
Isaiah says there is a voice crying in the wilderness. Luke says the voice crying in the wilderness. Luke tells us that John is the one who fulfills this prophecy and his message is, is, is revealed through the very prophecy here. The idea of, of mountains and hills being made low talks about the pride of man and the arrogance of people being brought down. John's public ministry as the forerunner to the Messiah is meant to, to humble the proud and at the same time to exalt the humbled, to bring those who are low to, to fill up the valleys, to straighten out the crooked, to bring sinners to reconciliation with God, to level the, 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 the rough ways. In a sense, what is being prophesied here is at the cross of Christ, the field is level for all. All people have to acknowledge their sin and see no matter where you are in life, if you're in a high uh, uh, status in life, God's going to bring you low. And if you're low, God's going to bring you up because at the cross, it's level. We're all sinners and we all need salvation. And so John is that voice. He has come to prepare the way. And how does he prepare the way? What, what is the preparation that John preaches about to get ready to meet Christ, to get ready to meet the Messiah, is one word. This brings us to the second point of the sermon, the message of John, and the message of John is one word, repentance. Repentance. Point two, the message of John, repentance. Now, we, we, we say he's John the Baptist, not John the Repenter, and so we, we think, okay, well, isn't baptism his main emphasis Yes and no. His main emphasis is a message of repentance. Baptism is the sign that God gave him to use to symbolize that people have repented. John was never preaching that being baptized would be repentance itself or that it's, it's, it's tantamount to conversion. It is always a sign that God is doing a work in the heart. It's an outward sign for the inward reality. And so we dare not make the mistake to think that baptism is a means of salvation or that baptism in itself is a means of forgiveness of sins. The message that John preaches is repentance. What is repentance? That is the question. Well, repentance is, if we get down to the original Greek word, it literally means to have a change of mind, metanoia. It means that, that at one time I thought one way, now I think totally different. Have you ever had a complete change of mind? Right? Have you ever thought one way your whole life and all of a sudden something changed and you think completely different on a matter? Well, that's exactly what repentance is. But it's not merely a change of mind. That's the most literal meaning. It's a change of heart and it's a change of your will. It's a change of your whole being. It basically means you change. It means to stop doing what you're doing and do the right thing. Stop doing what's wrong and do what's right. Stop sinning and live for God. Turn away from sin. And the word literally means to turn. It means I'm going this way and I'm going to make a U-turn. I'm going to turn away and I'm turning from my sin to God. As Paul will say later in 1 Thessalonians 1, turning from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance is the core of John's message, and it was consistent with the message of the prophets of the Old Testament, by the way, because the message of the prophet is always repent. But in the Old Testament, it was a little bit different because in the Old Testament, the word return is often used, and, and the word return and, and word repent are interchangeable, and it's return because Israel was in a covenant with God, and they had forsaken God. They had gone after idols. They had gone after their own way. And God is saying, return to me, return back to the covenant, and I may bless you. And so John is in the same way, preaching the same message that all the prophets preach. He's come to Israel, he's come to the Jewish people, and he's saying, return to God. Repent of your sin, turn from your sinful ways and turn to God. And with that, he's telling them, be baptized. Be baptized. Now, this is something new. And this is why a lot of people think that John is an Essene, and I, I, can, I concur with this. And that is because within the Essene community, 
um, they had developed a baptism, which was a ritual cleansing and washing. But more importantly, in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish community of the first century, baptism was used for Gentiles, not for Jews. So let me explain it. Let's say you're a Gentile, you're a Roman soldier, you're a God-fearer, you know, you've listened to the religion of the Jews and, and you believe in Yahweh, you want to serve Yahweh. In order to become... In order to become a Jew or to become part of the covenant of Israel, there was a process. Of course, you had to be circumcised if you were a male, and if you were an adult, that would be a very painful process, but that was to obey God's word. But if you wanted to join the, the community of faith in Israel, you also had to be baptized. Why? Well, remember what we learn um, in the Bible about Gentiles? They're considered unclean, filth. They're dirty. They're dirty and unclean with the, with the dirt of this world. And so how can we let an unclean person into the clean community? Well, there has to be a ritual cleansing and washing of all that dirt off and all that filth off the Gentile uh, uh, person. You know, obviously, it's metaphoric and it's symbolic, but it's basically saying you're dirty and you need to be cleansed before you can join our people. Now imagine the outrage for the Jewish community when John says, you Jewish people need to be baptized. He's basically saying, you're as filthy and dirty as you think the Gentiles are, and you need to be baptized to symbolize your consecration to God. See, to us, we're, we're Gentiles, most of us, and, and the idea of coming to faith in Christ and being baptized that's a beautiful thing. It symbolizes our confession, the identity with Christ. But to a Jewish person in the first century, you're a Pharisee and Sadducee. You come and you see John, and he says, repent and be baptized. Repent of what? Be baptized? It was an offense. Now, the word baptize literally means to dip, to immerse. And we know the scripture tells us John was in the Jordan baptizing, he was dipping people in the water, submerging them and bringing them out. Now, I think it's important to note that this was not the same as believer's baptism. Let's not, let's not confuse John's baptism with believer's baptism. They're two different baptisms. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation, of, of Jewish people consecrating themselves and preparing for Christ to arrive. As at once Christ has come, John's ministry ended. Remember he said, he must decrease, I must increase. He must increase, I must decrease, rather. And when Christ died, rose again, ascended to heaven, the church was given a mandate. Jesus says, go therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not in the name of John. John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't mean that John's baptism forgave you of sins but it was to prepare you for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God was about to do something very different and very new. The Jewish people wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah to deal with the Romans. They wanted a Messiah to deal with Pontius Pilate. They wanted a Messiah to deal with Herod. They wanted a Messiah to deal with Caiaphas and Annas. And God says, I'm sending Messiah to deal with your sin because that is your biggest problem. They were blind to that. But it was to prepare them because it was through Christ's death and resurrection that sin would be dealt with. And that baptism was to consecrate them and set them apart as they looked forward to almost the immediate sense where their sins would be atoned for. And I want you to think about this, you see. For the Jews, they felt that their greatest need was to be delivered from the oppression of their political enemies. They thought their greatest need was to just have national independence. But their greatest need was to have their sins forgiven. And I can tell you, nothing has changed since. Man's greatest need 
is to have our sins forgiven. Sin separates you from God. Sin kills. The wages of sin is death. Sin destroys you. It kills you. It ruins lives. And it casts people to hell where they're separated from God forever. Sin is fun for the moment. But sin is miserable forever. Sin needs to be dealt with. Only Christ can take care of that. And that's what Messiah came for. To deal with our sins, to take away our sins. And I would say even as we come to the Lord's table today, let us think that prepare our own hearts to meet with him in a special way. Because that symbolizes the fact that Christ dealt with our sins once and for all. He dealt with it by taking sin upon him, being our sin bearer, the guilt uh, uh, the, the condemnation that you and I deserve, the death penalty that you and I deserve, Jesus bore in his body. He bore on the cross and he shed his blood for you and I. He died so that we would live. The divine transaction was that this, he who knew no sin became sin that we may become the righteousness of God. Do you trust and believe in that? That is the gospel. That is the good news. But let me tell you this. You can't get there until you repent first. The message of repentance and the gospel go hand in hand. The good news of Christ's death and resurrection and dealing with sin and wiping sins away and forgiving sins, cleansing the slate, debt-free, Yes, it's a great promise and it's good news. But the gospel bids us to repent. Oh, you don't believe me? Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. The first thing that Jesus said in his public ministry. What did he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. It was Paul who stood there in Athens and Greece and told everybody, repent. For there's a one who's coming, who's risen from the dead, who's going to judge all mankind. It was Peter who told all of Israel when they said, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. You can't come to God without first repenting. Bible says, come as you are. We are sinners, right? We come, we don't try to reform ourselves, but there is a brokenness, there's a sorrow, there's a, there's a sense of, of guilt when we come before God and say, I am wrong. You know what? That is repentance, saying, I am wrong. I got it all wrong all my life. I thought I was doing it right, but I was wrong. I thought I was living for you or I was living for myself. I thought that was the way to live, but God, I'm wrong. I broke your laws. I broke your commandments. I am sorry. And not sorry because we're trying to avoid the consequences. Not sorry because we got caught. But sorry because our hearts have been broken that we know we've sinned against a holy God. The God who loves us and gave us life and breath and all that we have in this world, we have defied him. That's what sin is. And when we come to ourselves and say, I am wrong, God. I've sinned against you. I am a sinner. That is the heart of repentance. It is godly sorrow, which leads to a turning away. I hate that sin, God. I don't want it no more. I want you. Please forgive me, God. Cleanse me. And Jesus will never turn away a broken and contrite sinner, ever. That is the message of John. It is be the message of Christ. It's the message of the apostolic church. And it is the message that we preach today. Repentance and faith unto Christ. Thirdly, what is the fruits of repentance? Well, I want to look here at verses 7 through 14 because in this passage here, we see the response of the community to John. A delegation was sent from the Sanhedrin of Pharisees and Sadducees to to meet John and to see what was going on. Let's investigate 
These were the religious authorities. These were the theologians, the scholars. These were the who's who in the religious community. And they come to see John. Maybe they're coming to be baptized. Maybe they think, well, we'll just go through with this ritual cleansing and maybe this prophet is from God. And how does John respond to them? It says in verse seven, he said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. If John was a pastor, he would not be too successful in our day, right? Imagine if everybody came to church and I just said, you brood of vipers. What a way to to introduce yourself to the crowd. But John wasn't here to please man. He was here to please God. He had a very specific, and John could see through the veneer of their hypocrisy. He could see through their hearts. He knew that they weren't there for good intentions, and he could call them children of the serpent. You brood of vipers. You children of the serpent. You children of the devil. Jesus would say the same thing in John 8, 44, in his public ministry, when he told the Jews, you're not children of Abraham. Your father's the devil. Who warned you of the wrath to come? Who warned you? Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. Not judgment on the world, but judgment upon God's people, the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, was about to come under judgment. Who warned you? He's actually being a little sarcastic there. Because they're not there because they're trying to flee judgment. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And this is what we're going to identify in a little bit. What does it mean, the fruits of repentance? But, but let me skip that for a moment. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children from these stones. They were depending on their ethnicity to spare them from God's wrath. I'm a Jew. I'm circumcised. I'm Abraham's seed. I got nothing to worry about. You see, they had become so comfortable and complacent in their religious worldview that they didn't realize that they were utterly sinful and wicked and were about to come under judgment. I think that's a, I think that's a message to all of the church today. Because how many Christians are there today very comfortable in a profession of faith. They made it an altar call 20 years ago. Very comfortable with the fact that their family, they come from a family of good Christians that, well, my father was a pastor and my grandfather was a pastor and so therefore I'm a good Christian. Or, or they're, they're resting in the fact that maybe they were baptized at one time and, or they're a good outs- member of the church or they're Active and, and so we deceive ourselves by thinking that we're very good people and we have nothing to worry about. And much like Israel, who, who were resting in, in outside realities, weren't looking within to realize that they were utterly sinful and they needed to repent. You see, just as the Jews had filth in their hearts and they need to be baptized and consecrate to symbolize that they were dirty inside. I argue to you that me, I begin with me and you, we have to see the filth in our own hearts. I can't sit here and preach to you without acknowledging that I have dirt on me. Like we were seeing in James 4 and 8, we have to be cleansed and renewed daily. That's why the Bible says, confess your sins to Christ And he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We need to seek God daily for renewal and cleansing and washing because the stain and dirt of sin sticks to us so easily. I am not good with eating. If you know me well, my shirt gets stained right away. All my ties and shirts are stained. I'm avoiding ties now because if I go downstairs and eat afterward, 
it's stained and it costs too much money to get the stain out of the dry cleaner. So it is, we stain ourselves every day so easily. Do not say we have Abraham as our father. It's interesting, he says, God is able to raise up from these stones. The, the word stone and son sound the same, Ben, Eben. From these stones, Eben, I'm going to raise up a son, Ben. In other words, you think you're children of God. God can take these lifeless stones and make children out of them, pointing to the fact that God is about to do something new and bringing Gentiles into the kingdom of God. The very people that they saw as filthy and dirty and outside of God's grace, God's going to bring them in, and in their pride and arrogance, he's going to thrust them out. He says, even now the axe is at the tree. And every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Oh my gosh, the, the, the imagery is so explicit. It's of a woodsman who's already taken a hack at a stump and one more strike and the tree falls down. The axe is at the root. Israel had been through a lot in 400 years since Malachi prophesied. And if you really understand the state of Israel, look, read Malachi's prophecy. They were a mess then. In 400 years, they went through empire after empire that oppressed them. It was actually a sad history. The Maccabean revolt, they, they fought off the, the, the Greek oppressors, Antichius Epiphanes, and, and blood was shed. They fought for the purity of their people, but in their fight for purity, in their fight to conserve their, 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 their identity, they lost focus of why they existed. They were too bound up in their ethnic and national identity, and they lost focus that they belonged to God. The axe is at the root. Dead wood is going to be thrown in the fire. Oh, one has to wonder if that message applies to the church today. As the Lord warned in Romans chapter 11 that if some branches were broken off, that you Gentiles can be grafted in and the root is Israel, then isn't it reasonable to say, be careful? Because if the natural branches were broken off so you could be grafted in, don't be so arrogant to think that you and unnatural bench can't be broken off. Therefore, do not be puffed up. Do not be arrogant. Do not boast against the root. I'm paraphrasing this. And so the people cut to the heart and say, what do we do? What does it mean to bear fruits of repentance? What does that look like? And, and Luke gives us three examples. I'm sure there were many questions asked. But Luke gives three examples, and I think it fits the theme of his gospel. The theme of his gospel deals a lot with, with areas of life that are common and the areas of, of, of how we deal with other people and how we treat other people. And so he addresses three groups of people. First, I mean, we dealt with the religious establishment, their brood of vipers. But now he deals with the common people come to him, and, and, it, and it says that, that someone came to him and he said, well, the first answer is anyone who has two tunics, share with him who has one. If you have too much food, do likewise. In other words, if you have more than what you need, help those who don't. I think there's so many of us who have so much more than what we need. Are we willing and able to share with those who don't? And we become very callous. We just want to get ahead in life and have more stuff. But God wants us to have compassion on people. If you are a Christian, if you've been converted, if you've been repented, you've been born again, you can't see somebody naked and not clothe them. If you see someone hungry, you can't not give them food. The fruit of repentance is a heart that loves people, loves our neighbors, whether they're Christian or not, we don't see someone in the gutter and say, well, why are you in the gutter? We try to get them out of the gutter. And we don't look for the government to do it. We do it ourselves. It's voluntary compassion. That's one way we bear fruits in repentance. John says, let us not love merely in word, but let us love in word and deed. 
It's not merely enough to say, oh, be warm, be filled, go ahead. Do something about it. Now, you can't solve all the problems in the world, but if you know that there's an area you could help someone, do it. Then he addresses the tax collectors, and this is an interesting thing. He says, don't take more than what you're supposed to take. Tax collectors were basically contractors hired by Rome. Rome couldn't collect all the taxes. It was a big job. There was no IRS in the empire. And so what they did is they outsourced the work to third-party contractors. A lot of Jewish people said, you know, that's a good business. I'll collect the taxes for you. So not only did they get a piece of the action, but they exploited their fellow men. And they figured... You know, people gave them a hard time, so they charged them extra. They charged them a percentage higher than what they should have. And they took advantage of their fellow man. The people hated them as a result. And as the more they hated them, the more they oppressed them. It was a vicious cycle. You know, there's always going to be someone in business who can justify taking advantage of the next guy. In business... And if you own a business, you have to be mindful and careful that you don't try to get more than what you need. I've noticed in the last few years since the pandemic, everyone's gouging. Everything's expensive. And the more one person gouges, everybody gouges. And it comes to a point where you can't afford anything no more. Well, that's what happens when everybody takes more than what they need. John says, bear fruit, keep repentance. Just take that what you're supposed to get. And then he speaks to the soldier who comes to him and says the same thing. Don't, don't bully people. Don't threaten people with false accusations and say you're going to throw them in jail. Years ago, my cousin was in Venezuela and he was driving in the countryside and the cops pulled him over and, and they, they put a machine gun to his head and they said, we know you have drugs in the car. My cousin said, I don't have no drugs. I mean, the guy never did drugs. He's a police officer here in America. Oh, they found drugs. They planted a bag of heroin in the car. And they says, listen, you give us $1,000, American dollars, and we'll let you go. We don't see that often in America, but it happens in foreign countries where policemen and soldiers are underpaid. We kind of keep that at bay to some degree in the U.S. by giving our police officers good benefits and good packages, 20-year retirement pension. Kind of keeps that at bay. But in the ancient world, the Roman soldier wasn't paid well. And so like, like the police in Venezuela, they extort people to make money to go home. And they say, well, i got to feed my family. Right? Everybody justifies when they steal that they have a reason to do it. Well, the system's corrupt. I'm not paid well. i got to steal. i got to lie. i got to cheat. I heard someone tell me that one time. They said, the taxes are so high in New York. It was a businessman. He says, i got to lie. i got to cheat or else I won't make money. John says, don't do that. You want to bear fruits with keeping repentance? Notice how much of this has to do with money. All three have to do with money. Because greed is at the source of so much of our sin. So much of our sin is based on self-preservation and greed. Jesus will speak a lot about money in Luke. It's going to make us uncomfortable. John's audience was uncomfortable. But that's what true gospel preaching does. It makes people uncomfortable. We want to be uncomfortable. And we want to be uncomfortable because we want to bear fruits of repentance. When when God's word makes you uncomfortable, it means something's not right and you need to change. And you could do one of two things. You could either silence that discomfort and say, "Eh, I don't want to hear it and distract yourself and go look at some reels on Instagram and, and and. Kick it out of your mind. Or you deal with the discomfort and you bring it before the Lord in prayer. And you say, Lord, you're making me uncomfortable about an area in my life. I need to, I need to change it. Help me. And repent of it and confess it before God. Let me conclude. John was a bold and powerful preacher. I would have loved to have seen him preach. He went to prepare the way of the Lord, but his preaching was not entertaining. It was not funny. It was not comical. It was not uplifting. 
fact, his preaching was offensive. It made people uncomfortable. So is the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. So is the preaching of George Whitfield. If you ever read any Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he made you feel very uncomfortable. But that's what gospel preaching is. I think in our day we've lost a sense of that. I think people have very very little tolerance for anything that will make them feel uncomfortable. But I got to tell you, if we just say things to make people feel good, the church will just continue to careen towards self-destruction like Israel. If there was ever a time that we need preaching like that, it's now. We need the word of God to come. We need revival. We need repentance. We need a repudiation of the sins in our lives and the church. There needs to be an inward disgust and horror over the complacency that we have in our lives. I want to compel you today, look within. I don't want you to be comfortable in mediocrity. God's grace covers it all, but don't use God's grace as an excuse to just get by. God has shown you areas of your life that you need to deal with, deal with them. The beautiful thing is, the good news is this, that there's forgiveness with Christ. And if you're a child of God, you'll never be cast off. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no fear of death for those in Christ Jesus. It's the unrepentant who should fear. With that said, are you ready? Christ came the first time. John prepared the way. If Christ were to come back today, are you ready to meet him? Are you prepared? Christ can come back at any moment. My prayer for all of us is that we would prepare our hearts every day and live in the light of Christ's return at any moment and that we may rend our hearts, that we would repent daily. And God have mercy on us. Seek Christ from continual cleansing and renewal. But let me encourage you with this. Unlike Israel... We live on the other side of the cross. Jesus died for us. He rose for us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And so the beautiful thing is that by God's grace, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this message. I pray that you would rend our hearts, wound us, but heal us. And may the gospel affect our hearts in such a way that even as we prepare to meet you at the Lord's Supper, I pray that there'd be confession and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.